Good morning. Every once in a while, you'll hear a hymn that exalts God and speaks of the majesties of Christ, and I'm still stuck on the top lady hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, and the line that says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's really the story of all of us here. There is nothing we can bring, no price we can pay. And that's what sets us at odds uh, in this world. Uh, And so it is in that fashion that we come as Christians today to gather on a given day, this Lord's Day, um, that sets us apart from the world around us. And in some cases, uh, as we'll see this morning, it sets us at odds with the world around us. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. As you turn there, um, I did want to kind of speak about uh, one of the blessings that we have here at RHC is that we, we have a pastor that uh, preaches to us expositionally, and if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we've been going through the Gospel of John and the last Lord's Day, we, we ended at the end of the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And as we move on into that series with Pastor Phil, we'll be entering into the garden with Jesus. And there in the garden, he is betrayed by, by Judas Iscariot. And so I found it fitting that um, our subject today for this message is when persecution comes. And it is found in Luke chapter 6. Uh, We'll begin reading in verse 20, and we'll read on um, through the context of our focus verses, which I will tell us shortly. It's verse 22 and 23. Um, But let me read for us and then pray, and then we'll we'll get started. Amen? Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. Turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who, are, who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Let's pray. Father, we, we do come before you this morning, and as your people, we gather to offer up um, spiritual sacrifices of worship to you as as we have already been worshiping you through song and through prayer and through giving and through the reading and the proclamation of your word. and 
we would ask that you would um, cause us to learn, for apart from you, we can know nothing. We would ask that you would uh, comfort us, for apart from that, we shall not be comforted. We ask that you speak to us from your word, for lest we wander in ignorance. And we ask, Lord, especially this morning, that you receive full payment, full glory for the gathering of your people, that you would bring not only a comfort resolve to our lives, but also bring clarity as we seek to live our Christian lives in a world that is increasingly more hostile toward you and toward your word. Oh God, we, we ask that you would be with us here this morning. Speak to us. Speak to us that we may live. In Christ's name, amen. Our title for the message today is When Persecution Comes. Not if, but when. Our focus will be on verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. There is a question that seems to flow naturally from the title, uh, if and when, when persecution comes, uh, how will we respond? That's a question that each one of us has to ask. How, how we respond as Christians uh, is one of the most important areas of study, I believe, for believers uh, in America today. Since rejection and persecution are the definitive costs attached to true discipleship, anyone who will follow after Christ must be made aware of this important truth. Seeking to live godly in Christ Jesus will bring rejection. It will bring suffering. It will bring persecution. This truth must be part of the gospel that you and I call men and women to believe. It is the ultimate cost of discipleship. And as the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to his disciples here in Luke chapter 6, it's early in his ministry. It's a truth that must be given early in the gospel message. It's a truth that is exhibited by Christ, not only by his words, but in his very life. And I hope, uh, as the Lord wills this morning, that we will hold Christ as our example, not just uh, in his teachings about how to live when things are well, but how to live when things are not well. How do we respond? How do we best display Christ in our lives when things are rough, when we're in the valley? And here's a, a question, uh, sort of something to hang your hat on, if you will, as we go through this message, and it is, it is this, who do I live for? Who you live for will determine how you respond to trial. It will, it will determine how you respond to suffering. 
and it will determine how you respond in persecution. You see, if I live for me, I'm going to respond in a selfish way. If I live for something else, money, if I live for entertainment, if I live for fame, those are fleeting. They will pass. They will not comfort me. But if I set my gaze upon that which is most excellent, if I set my gaze upon Christ, whom my heart desires, if I set my every bit of my, every bit of my being upon Him, then I have the rewards that are speaking of here in the text that are spoken of. I want you to notice, first, there is an identity in verse 22. Blessed are you. There is a earthly reality when men hate you, ostracize you, insult you, scorn your name as evil, then there is an eternal reward. And then notice the last identity in verse 22. It is for the sake of the Son of Man. We have an identity. We have a reality of a world around us. We have an eternal promise that is to come. If we do these things, if they happen to us, for the sake of the Son of Man. As we sung the second hymn, it told us that we are to tell of the excellencies of Him. You see, that's our, that's our job as Christians. We stand in a world that offers so much in the way of comfort, in the way of security, in the way of hope that is really no hope at all. And we speak of the exclusive truth of Jesus Christ in the midst of such vain things. We speak of a Savior who went to the cross, the very King of kings, who bled for you and I. We speak of His atoning work. We speak of a one way there is to the Father, not the many ways that the world wants you to believe. We speak of uh, the majesty of Jesus Christ, His kingly head bowed in anguish as He there bleed upon the cross for those who put their faith and trust in Him. Oh, brethren, this is, this is a message that is counterintuitive to the world. And because of that, we're going to see more and more as ages go by, we're going to see more and more rejection. Perhaps one of the most influential factors upon our lives is how we experience the judgment of others. We have a natural desire to be accepted, to be heard, to be approved. We desire to be validated. As husbands and wives, we seek the approval and recognition of our spouses. As fathers and children, sons, they seek the approval of one another, the acceptance and recognition of one another. Employees seeking the recognition from their employers. We seek fame, whether it is infamous or famous, we seek to be recognized. We seek social recognition. We seek to be accepted by the communities in which we live. And now, from electronic devices in our hands, we accept, we want, and we expect recognition from a community that's much wider than our physical community through Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat. Social media acceptance is climbing amongst our youth today. 
And it is also what leads many down the path of suicide because of rejection, because of a wider audience that they do not know. But that is the world that we live in. Jesus says, when we are rejected or disapproved, we must respond with hope in a certain way. The reality is without Christ, when we are rejected, there is a deep, profound pain that exists within us. Jesus tells us this is exactly what our expectation should be. In this age, we will experience what he has spoken of here to some degree. To follow and to live and to believe in Jesus Christ, we must learn to leave social norms and concepts. We must learn to leave the approvals of this world and even some of those in it. This is demonstrated by the most radical concept of all in the Bible when we read that to receive the gospel is to receive Jesus Christ. That means that we are to then reject the things of the world. Not be removed from it, but reject its desires, its hopes, its ambitions. When we receive Christ, we no longer belong to the world. But the warning is there. If we reject the gospel, if we reject the Jesus that comes with the gospel, then that means that we fully receive the world and all that is in it. That is the most radical concept in all of Scripture. It is simple, but it is radical. This is the radical beginnings of the Christian walk, and it will go as far as including being rejected by people that you truly love, people who you would otherwise be seeking the approval from, but for the sake of the Son of Man, you must endure disapproval. You must suffer their ridicule. You must suffer persecution. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples, that they will endure during this age that they are on the earth. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you for the sake of the Son of Man. Blessed are you. And this verse, of course, is paired with verse 23, which offers the hope that we have, which is that reward. Be glad and rejoice. Leap in that day. Jesus informs us as his disciples that if we follow him, we must live for him. If we live for him, we will be marginalized. We will be removed from communities, cast out of societies, even maybe attacked in public. Think about this. In the time in which these disciples received this word from Jesus, they were realizing they would have to hang around people that they would otherwise not want to hang around. We eventually see them in the company of the diseased, the demonized, those deemed sinners in their society. And we eventually would even see them around Gentiles. Gentiles who were not readily received by the community in which they sought to be a part of. Gentiles coming from Tyre and Sy all over the place to be, to be healed, to hear the message of Jesus. These disciples would have to sit with them. You see, to fit into the community was so ingrained culturally, even Peter, after Pentecost, had some hesitation to go to the home of Cornelius. 
It took the Lord to say to him, do not hesitate. And even when he went into Cornelius' home, he made plain the statement, you know that it is unlawful for Jews to enter into the home of Gentiles. What is it that you want from me? This, this paradigm that existed in their day was real. It was palpable. So the question is, who are we living for? And who we live for will determine how we respond. Jesus' own earthly ministry was lived out in complete subjection to the will of His Father, which even included His death on a cross. The Son of God, the Son of Man, is not only our example of how we are to live, but also how we are in some way to finish this life. We are to live our faith and perhaps even die for it if necessary. That's the call of the Christian life. But we live in America. And in America, there is relative comfort afforded to us. We, we live in a country that, for now, at this time, there isn't a need for us to go underground to worship. But we have brothers and sisters around the world that that is their reality. They must hide underground. They must risk life, limb, uh, social standing in order to follow after Jesus Christ. And this reality is in some way ours to prepare for. It's going to be much harder to prepare for it when we're in the midst of it. And so church, listen, let's look to the scriptures. Let's find out how we are to prepare for it. Let's be ready for it in some way so that we know how to respond in the day of persecution. First, we see the first of two identities. Jesus says to them, blessed are you. Disciples of Jesus Christ who live for him find themselves in a new relationship with God. There is a new covenant that governs and the standing of all reborn people before the holy God of Scripture. Jesus Christ is the head of this covenant, this new covenant, and He has taken upon Himself the curse for our disobedience. And because He has taken the curse for our disobedience, He has placed His followers in a place of blessedness. And this is really your identity. If you are in Christ, you are blessed there is also a guarantee that comes with that relationship. And that guarantee is not hidden just in or revealed to us in the Old Testament, but it was hidden and slightly revealed to us in the Old Testament as well. Let's look at Psalm 32 really quick. We'll find here where this identity of blessedness comes as it is, I believe, hinted at but also illustrated. Psalm 32 verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Verse 2, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body washed away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away from me. As a fever of heat in the summer, I acknowledged my sin to you 
and my, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You were my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. And verse 11 will sound much like verse 23 of Luke chapter 6. Listen carefully. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. There is hinted at in the Old Testament what it means to be these blessed ones in Christ as they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, as they looked forward to the coming of the promised one. They had this hope, an expected hope, though dimmed, it was there. We see Paul in Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, as he's expounding upon what it means to uh, be justified not by works, but by faith. He says uh, that those who are justified are justified by their faith in Him who justifies. And then also there's a future aspect. And as we go through our our reading and our liturgy here at RHC, our monthly uh, theme is rest. And I find it fitting that in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, if we turn back here, as we consider this identity of who we are in Christ Jesus and the hope and the reward that we have as being being in Him and being His, we find in verses 12 and 13 these words. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may what? Rest. So that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. This is our identity in Christ. We are blessed. It has always been the identity of those who held to the promise of the one who would come, the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke of, uh, the Messiah who would lead his people to the promised land, if you will. This is the expected hope of Paul as he's writing about these blessed ones who do not look to the law to be justified, but look to Christ who fulfilled the law on their behalf. That is the hope. That is who we are in Christ. We are blessed. And the Beatitudes really point to this spiritual reality in a physical sense that if we are in this world blessed, speaking of the excellencies of Christ, uh, preaching the gospel to those who need to hear the gospel. I don't know of a single person that I've ever met that didn't need to hear the gospel. I'm a believer, yet only a few years, and I need to hear the gospel. 
It, it wasn't nothing in my hand I bring, I pass by the cross and then I sing. It's not how it went. <laughs> nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I hold the cross. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. It is what saves us. It's where we stand. It's how we know we have received him. And so we have this identity. Blessed are you. Secondly, we see from the text in Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when men hate you. Jesus, who knows the heart, he knows the hearts of all men, begins by describing this underlying condition of those hearts, hearts that are determined to be against those who follow him and not the world. And that is the tension that exists in the life of believers. Notice there's no neutral ground here. There's no friends of the cross in the world. There is hostility, there is rejection, there's no neutrality when it comes to the world. There's a judgment being made against those who follow Jesus Christ, you and I, they're they're making a judgment against you. And, And so we have to be prepared as we share the gospel. There is something about our place in Christ that is going to be rejected. Jesus said at the end of his high priestly prayer, in his high priestly prayer, that They are not of the world. Christ has taken us out of the world, though we still exist in it. He informed his disciples near the end of his uh, journey in the farewell discourse, as Pastor Phil has been leading us through there, do not lose heart. Why? For I have overcome the world. The world will hate you. Why? Because I have brought you out of the world. This hatred was focused upon Jesus himself at the very time of our gospel in Luke. In Luke chapter 4, when he preached his first sermon in his own hometown, he spoke of the sovereignty of God in feeding, uh, feeding one Gentile widow, in healing one Gentile captain named Naaman from leprosy, in a time when leprosy was rampant throughout Israel. He spoke of the sovereignty of God to do that, and they sought to take him to the edge of the city over a cliff to toss him off, but we're told he passed from them. It was not his time. Jesus was almost killed by those who listened to him preach in Luke chapter 5. He claimed divine prerogative to forgive men of their sins. They disagreed with him in Luke 5.30 for eating with sinners and violently rejected his claim that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Even when the Lord of the Sabbath did what was lawful on the Sabbath in Luke chapter 6, verse 2. We even find in Luke 6, 11 that they were filled with rage and they planned what they might do to Jesus in that time. There is even more information in Mark's account, Mark chapter 3 and verse 6. We're told that the Pharisees went out from there And they conspired with the Herodians on how they might destroy Jesus. Jesus knew the hatred of men. To hate is to have murder in your heart. And that is where this hatred 
ultimately takes these hearts. They're going to put Jesus under the pure focus of their hatred. They're going to see him murdered upon the cross. And Jesus says, that same hatred, that same disdain for me, beloved, blessed ones, will be focused toward you. Jesus is not only our teacher and our example of how we are, or how we will be treated, but he also instructs us in the very next section of the very same sermon in the manner of our response. Look down at verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. The master teacher that Jesus was and is. Listen to what he says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. How counterintuitive is that type of response? I remember the first time I read these verses and how my reaction to that was backwards, it seemed. I was not ready to receive this type of teaching. Even as a young Christian standing on the street corners of downtown Modesto, preaching the gospel at 10 o'clock at night and uh, surrounded by 12 bars down at 10th and J. It seems to be a foolish thing to do, but we're all fools for the cross, are we not? The message of the gospel is what? Foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. Preaching the gospel at, on a Friday evening when men are spitting at you and they throw things at you and they curse you, And you get more grace, you get more patience, you show more love, and it doesn't matter. They become more violent. They become more hateful. And I remember thinking at that time, reading these verses and thinking, I am so grateful for the verse that does not exist in the Bible where Jesus does not say, thou shall have no enemies. Because, brethren, when we share the gospel, we will not make friends with everyone. We will not be able to avoid having enemies, but what we learn is that when we respond to them, we are showing how Christ responds to his enemies. I was once an enemy of Jesus Christ, and it was through the faithful preaching of God's word that won my heart by the work of God to recapture me, if you will, as not only a creature of his, but now one who is made to be like Christ. And the same is true for you. You who were once outside of Christ were an enemy of Him. You were not neutral to Him. There is no neutrality. And there are many in the world around us today. We walk by them in the stores. We see them on the streets. They are yet without Christ. It is our job as ambassadors for Him to bring that message of reconciliation of the cross directly into the public square so that they can hear the good news of Jesus Christ that they may know and believe. That's our calling, brethren. We must not forget that the Scripture teaches that the natural man is at war with God. And they would rather see believers suffer some sort of defeat, maybe even death. Death to your social standing, death to your reputation. Despite this, we are to be a savor of life, a sweet and pleasing aroma of Christ among them that are being saved and among those that are perishing, 2 Corinthians 
The disciple is not above his master. If you are a disciple of Christ, they will look at you as they see Christ. As Christ was treated, so too will you be. As Christ responded, so then also shall we. As ambassadors to him, we look to the world, ambassadors, we are ambassadors for him, and we look to the world around us. In his absence, the world seeks to slap and punch and re-crucify him, but he is not there for them. Guess who is? It is those who are called by his name. We are the ones that they see. This brings us to a biblical principle. I believe it's very important for us to see as well. The way in which one treats the church is the exact same way in which one treats Christ. To demonstrate this, we only need to look at Acts chapter 9 and see the the Saul of Tarsus who was to become Paul. As he's on the road to Damascus to persecute those who are in the way, the Lord appears to him, strikes him from his horse, he falls to the ground blind, and he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you chasing down my followers? No, that's not what he said. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How one treats the blessed ones of Christ and the church is how one treats the Son of Man. In John chapter 15, we read the words of our Lord where He there teaches of the inevitable treatment that disciples would receive from the world. Chapter 15, verse 18, He says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. We know that Jesus is speaking here of this type of hate. We know that Jesus is encouraging uh, his disciples. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. John chapter 1 tells us the light has come into the world, right? John chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20 says that this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds or evil. For everyone who does evil, note this, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Men will do whatever they can to put out the light. Think about this. When we're trying to secure our own homes, when the sun goes down, Law enforcement tells you it is when most crimes increase under the cover of darkness. When we're securing our homes, what do we do? We put up lights. We put light around the property. We put lights around the backyard. We put lights out on the driveway. Why? Men do not like the light because evil deeds are exposed. There is a principle here that we must learn. They don't hate you. You're a reflector. (laughs) I am a reflector of the light of Christ, hopefully. Remember, they're they're not after you. They're after the one who will condemn them, who has judged them already. When you preach the gospel of reconciliation to a lost soul, it doesn't want to hear that it's been judged. What it wants to know is that it has its best life now and that it can get away with whatever it wants. It doesn't want to face 
the one true God. It wants to put God away. It wants to put God in a box. But Jesus says, men hate the light because their deeds are evil. Blessed are you when men hate you for his sake. Another thing we see here is the word ostracize in Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Blessed, will, blessed are you when you are ostracized for the sake of the Son of Man. The word ostracize means to discriminate against, to mark something off by setting a boundary around it. And the idea here is to separate something, moving away from it, to drive something out of a community. This means that that mark, the label for which the person receives, is to be described as banished. But God, through Jesus Christ, has established another concept, and that is a kingdom in which all of these things are upside down. God, through Jesus Christ, has redefined family. He has redefined a community. He's redefined the word nation. What the world rejects for the sake of the Son of Man, God says, I establish in my kingdom. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. Here's a, one of the demonstrations we see of Jesus redefining even family and telling us of the tension that exists in our lives as Christians and what it means to follow after Him. Matthew 10, 34, starting there, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the world, on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemy will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus must be our all in all. We must hold him exclusive to all other things. Above our jobs. Above the hope of ever having a, a good group of friends. We must hold Jesus as completely in his, in his prime area of our lives. We, everything that we do, everything that we hope for must be found in Christ. Jesus says, for the sake of the Son of Man, your family relationships are going to be affected. Converted children will experience the rejection of unwanted parents. Wives will experience disapprovals from unbelieving husbands. Husbands will experience the same from unbelieving wives. Siblings will find themselves excluded from unbelieving brothers and sisters. We find parents in their old age will be distanted from their unconverted children who want nothing to do with them. But rejoice, for what has been lost physically, Christ rewards in a spiritual family 30, 60, 100 fold. You look around this room and you find brothers and sisters who have a bond to you much tighter than blood. United by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, an eternal family, a family of sacrifice, a family who 
brings a shoulder to the one who needs comfort. A family member who sits by in prayer while you suffer. A family member who prays for your well-being, who seeks your God on behalf of you. A family member who may find that you have a need and they may, as Jesus said, sell something just to meet that need. That's the family that Christ rewards you with. Jesus, in his own nation or hometown, was completely rejected. We already talked about Luke 4, 24, but he says there, I tell you that no prophet is welcomed in his own hometown. Jesus' local community, and by extension, his nation, ruled by the Sanhedrin, the government of his people, not only rejected him, but were the very institution that worked to put him to death on a cross. I think it's difficult for us as we read these texts to understand exactly how much of an impact this would have upon the disciples. This idea of discrimination. We live in somewhat of a compartmentalized and fragmented society today. We, we have a small, tight community that we really don't pay too much attention to. Uh, I have my life, I go, I work my job, I come home. Sometimes we even treat the church this way. We're distanted from even the community of the church. There has been uh, something of a a disintegration of our community and our community sense in the way that many of us don't even go outside or even try to expand our immediate sphere to experience the type of rejection that Jesus is talking about here. But to the disciples... In Jesus' time, the nation was not just a nation in which a man would seek to be prominent in, but the nation had a greater standing in the community around it because it was in a relationship under the old covenant with God. And to be in favor with God was to be seen as being part of that community. Jesus told his disciples, there's going to come a time, they're going to put you out of the synagogue. This had to be terrifying for them. We even know that after Jesus' resurrection and His ascension, that the disciples, they went and they stayed in these areas because they had hoped to convert the Jews. But they had to be scattered. They had to go out. They had to be rejected. They could not stay. In John chapter 9, there's a great example of this uh, feeling of not wanting to be rejected. The parents had a son who was healed from his blindness. And the parents were careful, and when they answered Jesus, when, he, or how, when they answered the Pharisees, when they came and asked, who healed the man? In 9.22, they asked the question, but we're told that they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already said that whoever confessed Jesus to be Christ would be put out of the synagogue. Jesus in John 16.2, we said that, he confirms these things. What about the disciples? In Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, when they were, they were told by the council, do not preach in his name. Don't preach in his name. What are we told? That they were brought before the council and they were flogged. And when they were flogged, they went out from that place rejoicing because they had suffered shame for his name. Brethren, that's, brethren, that's our hope. That, that's, that is what we look forward to. Hopefully, we suffer in some way 
One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite preachers locally here, his name is Willie Gaines, uh, he preached a sermon on, on the text that says, through much tribulation we must enter into the kingdom of God. And he put it this way, if you ain't tribulating, if you ain't tribulating, you ain't getting in. Let us, let us welcome tribulation. Let us welcome persecution. Fourthly, in our text, we see that the blessed will be insulted, or as our pastor's Bible will tell him, reviled in the ESV. Brother, I got you. This insulted or reviled means to be reproached. It means to be spoken of with disdain, without any justification, reprimanded without cause. The blessed will receive blame without any reason. They will be scolded and denounced. And really, in our beatitude, there's a focus here not so much on, on being murdered, but being falsely accused, falsely spoken of. So it's not so much a focus upon the commandment of thou shalt not murder, but thou shalt not bear false witness. That's what we will suffer. We will suffer being the subject of false witness. You will remember Jesus was accused of being a demoniac, remember? Jesus said it is not enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? If this is what they said about him, this is what they will say about us. So how do we respond? This is a dark, providential heavy situation as Christians, how do we respond? Well, Peter, the apostle that we often know as being impetuous, somewhat, I, I think he's much like me, Peter writes, 1 Peter, turn with me to 1 Peter in the back of, near the back of your Bible there, and let's get the uh, commentary from the apostle Peter on how we are to suffer. One of the things you will note as a tool for you as you're reading through the New Testament, especially the Gospels or the letters of the Apostles, is that there's a structure to their letters. They always speak first of, of the glory and the majesty and the work of God through Jesus Christ in some way before they get to the correction, discipline type part, there's always this setting up of what is most excellent. And Peter does the same here in 1 Peter chapter 1. He tells these aliens and strangers that have been scattered in these five providences, he tells them that they are to continue in hope. Now, you're in 1 Peter, Amen. Turn over to chapter 4 real quick. We're going to get a sneak peek as to what I believe is the reason for this letter. Peek down at verse 12, 1 Peter 4, 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. 
so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Peter tells these believers who were already pursuing holiness, they were already pursuing godliness, they were already different than the Roman community around them, that's what got them in trouble in the first place. Peter tells them, that's okay, keep doing that and rejoice. Listen to what Peter says. I'm just going to read through here, beginning in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Stop right there. Is that true about you? Are you born again? In Christ? And if you are, then you know that there is much to rejoice about because of that. In this you greatly rejoice, verse 6b, even though now for a while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. What are the reason for these trials, Peter? Verse 7 so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. You mean the fire, the trial, the suffering, the rejection, the hatred of the world is to result in the the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Yes. Verse 8. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What else is there in this world than to know that Christ has saved you and that He comforts you and He is with you and that you, in the trial of your faith, will result into the praise and the glory and the honor that He deserves for what He has done for you? What more is there? We could stop right there, close the book, and go home. There's nothing else. But Peter's not done there. He's going to give us a little more information. Go to chapter 2. Peter, being led along by the Holy Spirit, does not pull any punches here. You'll see verse 13. He, He says something that may... It rubs against our nature. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or the governors as sent for him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Submit. Paul in Romans 13 says uh, that you are to obey civil authorities because they have been established by God. Peter's going to work through the, the civil, uh, the occupational, even the relational constructs of a husband and a wife, and he's going to tell you how you are to behave. Listen to what he says. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are also, what? For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering, what's the word? For what credit is there, brethren, if when you sin and you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? I'll give you the answer. It's, there's no credit. You, you don't get anything for, for sinning and suffering for the sin that you've done. Peter's going to unpack this a little bit for us. But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. How backwards is that? We, we live in a country that espouses a constitution where we have rights. We have rights. You can't treat me that way. Oh, but if you're in Christ, you have one right. You have the right to eternal life as Christ has afforded it for you, and you have a cross on which to die. That's your life as a Christian. You are the seed planted in a world that is in need of a vineyard. In order for the seed to sprout to the vineyard, it must be put in the ground. It must be planted. Look at verse 21. If you've ever asked the question, why have I been called? What's my purpose? Your purpose is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. But look at what Peter says. He says, after telling you that you must suffer unjustly and it finds favor with God when you do it patiently, he says, for this purpose you have been called. It's pretty clear. And then here is the most excellent part of this entire encouragement to suffer unjustly with patience. Since Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. How did Christ suffer? Surely he, he, did, he did what? He who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept on trusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Brethren, who you live for will determine how you respond. And here's another reality. Your circumstances do not hinder you from pursuing righteousness. 
Your circumstances do not hinder you from pursuing godliness. The beatitude says you may be poor, you may be hungry now, you may be hated, but that does not keep you from pursuing the reward. Christ's current sufferings equaled a future glory. Your current sufferings equal a future glory. And Paul says they pale in comparison in Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. They are not worthy to be compared to the glories that lie ahead. Who we live for will determine how we respond. Our suffering, our social standing, our rejection does not prevent us from pursuing holiness and godliness and righteousness. In fact, in the midst of that, we are to pursue it all, to, all the more. Why? Because he who called you is holy. Be holy. Be different. Be set aside. Pursue things that are good. Flee from those things that are evil. Resist the devil and cling to God. We see this throughout Scripture. Flee from youthful lusts, right? Do not make a provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust that it desires, Paul says. There's your marching orders. How do I live? What's God's will for my life? This is God's will for you that you abstain, what? Fornication. Abstain from sexual immorality. These, this is what it means to pursue righteousness. Let me, let me give you a quote a letter in 112 A.D. that was written from uh, Pliny the Younger to Emperor Trajan. Pliny was uh, the governor of Bithynia, and he was actually charged with persecuting, interrogating, and executing Christians. And he writes to Emperor Trajan, and he says this. He says, In the course of the action for which I have been charged to partake, I have interviewed many Christians. And this is what I do. I bring them in and I ask them if they are Christians. If they say yes, I ask them again. And if they say yes, I intermingle some threatenings and abuses and I ask them a third time. And if they say yes, I execute them. He says, but there are some who have rejected Christ. I have brought them before me. I've asked them if they are Christians and they say they have not been Christians for three. One man said five, another said 20 years yet. Some of these I recognize as being citizens of Rome, so I sent them there. He says, the ones that said they were not Christians, they offered a pinch of incense. They worshiped your image, emperor, which I brought for this purpose. They bowed down to our gods and they rejected Christ. So I let them go. He says, thinking that there was something else that might be going on, I found two women that they called deaconesses and I brought them in and we abused and tortured them, but I learned nothing new. And this was their offense. Speaking of the Christians, they gathered on a certain day. They sang hymns to Christ as if He were a God. They abstained from adultery, fornication. They would not commit bribery or accept bribery. This is a crime Worthy of death, said Pliny. The morality of Christ by Pliny is called an immorality. You heard Brother Cameron this morning. We live in such an age where good is evil and evil is good. 
Brethren, set your hope upon Christ. Be encouraged. Do not lose heart. For He has already overcome the world. Your hope is not in this world because this is not your kingdom. Your kingdom is in heaven. It's coming. It's in you. It is with you. And you are a member of that society. The king, the very king who gave his life for you, is the one to whom we seek. We seek his return. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in this time that we've had, though short, your word speaks to us clearly. I pray that you would enlarge our hearts for the gospel, that you would refresh us anew, that the gospel would be to us something that uh, we not only know for sure of ourselves, but that we also speak about as we go out of this place. We are thankful for this church. We're thankful for our pastor. We're thankful for the elders here who labor in the gospel and who lead faithfully. We pray that the ministry that has existed in this pulpit over the years finds more of an amplification in our lives. As we go out into the world, let us, let us be bold to share the gospel, not fearing men, but having a proper fear for you, a little bit of trembling and a whole lot of reverence. Let us go from this place with the only message that has the ability to save a man's soul, and that is the message of Christ. Give us opportunities to share. Let us not look at the fiery trial that is in front of us, but let us set our gaze upon the eternity that is to come. Let us keep our minds heavenly word that we may not pay so much attention to the things of the earth. Let us set our hope and fix our gaze upon him who our hearts desired, desire and all of God's people saying, Amen. Amen. Thank you.